You're listening to Module 4 of EDLD 8062. This week, we are exploring campus racial climates and campus racial unrest. This all ties into how you, higher education stakeholders, understand and define diversity and equity on campus. Campus unrest, for better or worse, will always be a part of higher education. I say for worse because campus unrest is often the result of inequitable conditions. I say for better because activists push campuses and thereby society to become more responsive and equitable. In this module, we will learn more about the antecedents to racial unrest on campus, activism, the emotions behind activism, and institutional responsiveness. Now we'll hear from the expert, Dr. Marissa Cowheaton, one of my best friends and more pertinent to the module an expert on the relationship between identity and activism in higher education. Before you listen to our conversation, make sure you skim the reports she co-authored, as well as your case study assignment that is due at the end of the module. I'm sure her words will provide insight, and her words can count as a source you cite in your case study paper. So today we have Dr. Marissa Cowheaton. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, thank you so much, Dr. Tichavakunda, for having me. This is really um, a pleasure. So my name is Marissa Cowheaton, and I use she, her pronouns. And let's see, something you want me to tell you a bit about myself? Yeah, just a bit about yourself, yeah. No, born and raised in Los Angeles, California. And I actually started out at a community college, went to Santa Monica College, and then transferred and really... Um, kind of got deeply involved in student activism and uh, also was very involved in a lot of campus leadership stuff. So I decided to pursue um, a career in higher education. So as a result, I went on to higher ed, uh, to, to, to do the higher ed program at NYU um, and ended up working at NYU for a total of seven years. And so during that time, I worked in a lot of different areas, um, but really started to begin to ask questions that I knew could only be answered through research. And so, you know, working in student activities and um, the multicultural center, and I taught an intergroup dialogue course on race, um, you know, worked in res life with lots of different student leaders you know, overseeing lots of clubs and student organizations, all of those experiences and watching how students navigated, um, you know, their college experience and how they kind of encountered many different challenges as a result of how the institution was structured and the limitations of what was offered, particularly to, you know, historically marginalized students. Um, I just began to ask lots of questions, and I knew that it was only going to be through pursuing a PhD that I would really be able to dissect those issues. So that's why I ended up at USC to work on my PhD, um, where I ended up doing my dissertation work on Asian American and Pacific Islander student resistance. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of continued on. I mean, really, most of my work looks at um, higher education leadership, social justice education. Yeah student activism. And so, um, so yeah, that's where most of my research is focused. And then, cool. uh, am I done here? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but apparently I did. Um, that, <laughs> that, that, that leads me to my next question. So 
Um, you told us a bit about your research, social justice, identity, um, specifically Asian American, Pacific Islander, uh, PETA student activism, right? Um, how, how did you, what, what led you to that for your research, for your dissertation? Well, you know, I've always been interested in student activism as a result of my own experiences as a student activist and then, mm-hmm. you know, quickly transitioning to the, to the administrator side as, um, you know, as a practitioner and, you know, working at NYU. So, you know, within this, within one year, I went from student activist to an advisor for student organizations who were deeply mm-hmm. involved. I, I began to, that's where the questions started. Um, and, you know, I've always been invested in racial identity and exploring race and how um, different communities kind of work alongside one another, create solidarity, but also the, the you know, natural sort of issues that um, are at play as a result of the history of our country. So I, you know, that's how I ended up kind of deciding to go for Asian American and Pacific Islander students. You know, I, I knew that Asian Americans in particular have, you know, been situated in a in an odd place, have been um, seen as the wedge, um, you know, between white and black. And for me growing up in Los Angeles, you know, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. And um, at the time, uh, most of my upbringing was with living with my Japanese grandmother who was an immigrant. And so for me as a black child, uh, living with a Japanese immigrant and sort of learning the world through that experience in particular, you know, grew up in Los Angeles during um, the 90s when the Rodney King riots took place. I was also, you know, most of my education um, was in predominantly Latinx schools. Uh, And so I was kind of always exploring race and trying to understand different positions within racial justice. And so uh, it was both a personal exploration of trying to understand as a researcher, as a black woman researcher, what that would be like to ask these questions to Asian American and Pacific Islander students about activism, anti-blackness in particular. Mm. Um, But then also just trying to understand now, you know, in, in our current moment, how are they navigating student activism? How are they working alongside Black, Latinx, Indigenous communities? And so um, I just I just felt like it was an area of study that so many scholars have not dived deep into. And more importantly, I knew that I was in a unique position being a Black researcher um, who both identified with the community, but also very much I don't have that experience. And so I knew yeah. that I was going to be able to get some really good data from this study. And I and I was able to. So that's kind of how I kind of ended up diving into Asian American Pacific Islander activism. That's super interesting. I mean, I, I always think about how um, identity, regardless of what your identity is, shapes a lot of the research that we're doing and, and just what we're interested in in a lot of ways, right? Um, I think a lot of folks, um, especially folks of color, folks who are doing more critical research. Um, you know, we just have uh, Donald Trump and the administration putting out that whole, uh, you know, anti-racist work is anti-American, critical against critical race theory research, right? 
Um, you have that you have that camp. You have the camp of like conservatives or even just conservative scholars who think that folks are doing research around race or critical issues or just doing me search, right? Um, when in reality, all of us in a lot of ways are doing stuff that's interesting and close to us, you know. Um, so I think I do. I just want to say I think it's super interesting how your identity is woven into what you find interesting and, and the research you think is important, right? Um, but yeah, I just wanted to make that note. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I, I guess um, thinking about campus racial climate, uh, this this module, um, our students are really digging into campus racial climate. They're reading that. Uh, um, Harper and her title piece, like the nine themes of camp racial climate stuff, you know, so they're really getting their feet wet with that. And then they're going to be writing a uh, response to a case study that pretty much like a, this fictional university is having someone of like a racial crisis, you know? So I think it thought it would be perfect to hear from you, someone who did kind of work around racial activism, at campus activism, and also racial crises. Uh, but, so I thought it'd be dope to talk to you. But um, I guess on a very general basic level, right? Um, when you think of campus racial climate or what, what comes to mind? Um, you know, campus racial climate, I think, is always going to be relevant. It always has been relevant. It's interesting to see how campus racial, the work around campus racial climate has evolved and expanded. Um, because we know that, you know, uh, people have been sort of talking about it and exploring it for many, many years. I mean, dating all the way back to the beginning of, of higher education, um, yeah. much of what much of the changes that we see in higher education in terms mostly around, you know, how to be inclusive, how to serve different student needs is always around um, the unrest that students have about the campus racial climate or about the campus climate overall. Totally. Right? So. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think it's incredibly important. It's always relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm glad, I'm really glad that um, this current moment that we're in, um, you know, that was sparked by, you know, much of the Black Lives Matter movement has, has really forced institutions to examine their, uh, their climate in ways that they haven't before and has um, forced institutions to recognize how important uh, racial literacy is for every, yeah. every higher education leader. It's no longer just a CD, you know, a chief diversity officer's role mm -hmm. to understand uh, campus climate. It's everybody's, it's everybody's job to understand how that impacts their unique role, whether it's someone mm -hmm. in aid, someone in mental health services, someone in, you know, uh, student athletics, everyone yeah. to understand how the institution is serving different I guess that's, you know, a question one might ask. Okay, I work in financial aid. I work in, you know, I work in the library. Why Why does this, uh, why do I need to understand campus climate? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we, <laughs> that we don't, that these answers are not as clear, right? Because Anyone who understands anything about anything about the history of our country knows that um, financial aid is like so incredibly important to yeah. um, historically, you know, oppressed people. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if we take black students in particular, we know that um, there's a disproportionate representation of um, stu black students who are low income, who grew up in 
areas where they didn't have um, the financial resources that they need or, you know, yeah. opportunities for their parents to go to college or whatever that might be. And so how a student uh, is invited and supported by a financial aid office is very much, uh, it's like very much intertwined in that person's role. Like that person totally. can understand all that that student is bringing, all of the, the limitations that they've had in their life, all of the, the potential microaggressions that mm -hmm. could happen in a conversation around money, around yeah. parent involvement, around whatever that might be. So, um, so fi you know, financial aid, I actually think is probably one of the um, most critical areas where someone would need to have an understanding of of race yeah but so, uh, yeah so, so, so i mean and, and i think that's the idea i definitely want to impress upon everyone right like a, every part of a university has somewhat of a climate right you may even call it a microclimate even if you're not in contact with students all the time like l look around who you're working with right um how number one what are the demographics of the people you're working with in the in your office uh, whether it's HR, what have you, right? Like, wh what are the de what are the demographics? Um, I mean, uh, last week we were talking about intersectionality. Um, is it predominantly men? Is it predominantly white? Right? Um, how do the you know more marginalized folks, uh, historically marginalized folks, feel in that setting? Right. So I, I think climate is just so useful because it pushes you. If I think one of the things about this, if you're not thinking about the campus climate or the climate of where you work, why aren't you? Right um yeah for sure and i'm you know, it's, it's a it's a luxury to not have to think about it as we know yeah it's a privilege and oftentimes um yeah oftentimes we see the the sort of what we call the dni work you know diversity and inclusion work as a bonus piece of knowledge but that's something again that everyone it, it's a critical set like it's a critical uh you know understanding that every person needs to have and so you know it's just interesting to me that we've gone for so long uh with thinking that it's not relevant yeah. uh, at every in every position yeah no i, I love how you put it that way like think about dni you know diversity equity inclusion what have you think about that as a bonus as a supplement as opposed to part and parcel of all the work we do and you said you should be intertwined with what we do right so i i love that you uh, phrase it that way. Um, I guess switching gears a little bit, just thinking about the racial crises, right? Um, obviously, over the summer, we have <clears throat> these historic uh, racial uprisings, if you will, right? And a lot of that is still spilling over into campuses, um, as it should. Um, you, you have a unique experience with um, racial uprisings, right? So you did some work with the research team following um, after the racial uprising at Mizzou. Um, when was that? 2015, 2016? 15, yeah. Yeah, so can you tell, tell me a little bit about your experience doing that research following that, you know, um, that huge racial uprising that the media was just super into? How, how was your experience doing that? What, what type of work were you doing? Yeah, no, it was such a, it was such an honor to do that work because, um, you know, the entire country was watching the University yeah. of Mizzou. Um, respond to uh, what we now, you know, very clearly understand was a, you know, rightful uh, frustration that many Black students and faculty had on that campus. And so, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I was really lucky to be able to be on a research team. It was a qualitative study that we did where we 
went and interviewed, um, you know, it was essentially a leadership study. So we went and interviewed um, senior level leadership, um, faculty, administrators to understand how they were responding to, or how they were sort of rebuilding the campus after this uprising. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what was interesting is that even though it was like nationally publicized and, you know, there were definitely some elements that made this unique. Obviously, we know that, you know, um, you know, students went on a hunger strike and, you know, students really protested and put their bodies on the line. Yeah. It is uh, possible. So for sure, that was a unique aspect of student activism that we don't see as often. However, what isn't unique is the um, the inadequacies that existed amongst the leadership. So, totally. you know, the, the president and many of the senior level le leadership, again, as we just said, had no understanding of race and um, racial injustice. So they had no concept as to how to respond to any of these issues. Mm. Over time, it was just a buildup. And so... That's what I found to be the most compelling to me was that, wow, this could be anywhere. Like what everything that these faculty and administrators and students are sharing with us about the frustrations that they have, um, this, this could be anywhere. This could so, be at my, this could be where I went to undergrad. Yeah. So but that part wasn't unique. Um, and so it was really cool to, you know, write, uh, you know, a report that essentially became like a, you know, blueprint or a, a set of lessons learned that any institution could take. This wasn't like you look at this and be like, oh, well, my institution can't use any of these. Yeah. Like every institution that I've ever been at or been affiliated with um, can absolutely put those things into practice. And yeah. so I really um, I really found that to be a powerful uh, thing that Mizzou was willing to be used as a case study for, yeah. for any and all um, higher education institutions. Yeah, totally. And, I, and just thinking about that, right? Um, in reading it, you talk. There's a a bit that talks about a campus. Um, well, Mizzou's it was a recommendation of owning your history and acknowledging the racist past, right? Um, and then also racial healing, right? So, so can you talk like why is it necessary? Um, in your opinion, um, like why is it necessary to own like kind of history or acknowledge it at least? Um, you know, we just see too often that when we don't acknowledge it, it allows for uh, it allows for us to keep the cycle continuing. Yeah. So when there's no documentation or acknowledgement uh, for the you know the many dis the many disparities that exist and have always existed. It just, you know, allows for an institution to point at particular student populations or faculty or, you know, identities in general and just say, well, clearly you haven't done the work to, you know, have the representation you need, have the outcomes. Yeah. So it allows for us to, whether it's blatantly said or not, put blame um, on particular groups that aren't aren't represented or aren't, yeah. you know, getting the acknowledgement that they need. So I think that that's just a really important, powerful lesson that our country needs as a whole and that, you know, every institution needs. Um, and it's really what every participant who was in the study said that they they wanted. They were like, all yeah. we really 
is for the institution to just acknowledge that these these issues have been happening since the beginning of time. Yeah. And they were so unwilling to do that. Yeah. So that, that, that says something too. Like just acknowledge that you're wrong, yo. You know, like I mean, this this has nothing to do with anything, but you know, I, 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 you know, on Twitter, I'll see something about like, you know, someone taking a poll, like, did your parents apologize to you? You know, mm-hmm. um, and just acknowledging that they're wrong. And obviously it's different, but I'm seeing about power dynamics, right? Um, yeah. The university uh, apologizing, you know, uh, my, my class read about, uh, you know, Derek Bell's uh, piece on symbols. So university apologizing at the end of the day, I think is a symbol, but it is a positive step. And, and necessary, right, in order to reckon with that past, or at least try to do any type of redress. Like, you can't have um, any type of reparations without acknowledging the harm that was done, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it is really the first step, because we've been mm-hmm. able to see how, in acknowledging <clears throat> the, the racist past and present, uh, that then people can understand the value in creating educational opportunities for faculty leadership and students around, totally. you know, these issues. So without that, then those things don't seem important or relevant at all. Yeah. How, how did, I mean, I guess more on like a, a personal level, right? Like, uh, so you were out here flying to Missouri, right? Mm-hmm. Lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> leaving LA to go to Missouri, gotta love it, you know? <laughs> But, um, but I mean, how, how did that process of interviewing and also, you know, as, as the students will see, like, I mean, obviously you're, um, you're, you're a big name yourself, right? But you're there with uh, more seasoned folks in the game, more seasoned uh, <laughs> scholars, right? How was that experience for you? I mean, what, what really, I guess, impacted you in that process, right? Were there any stories that you heard, whether from participants or from the scholars you were working with, what, what do you, you know, what, was there anything that like really moved you or, you know, you found super compelling? Um, you know, the, the most interesting experience for me uh, was actually just what it meant for, for me as a black woman who was living in California, having to travel to Missouri um, you know, at that time, you know, our, our president had just been elected. And so yeah. it was, there was a lot of racial tension all over the country, but in particular in Missouri. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, so I could just feel it in the air. I could feel the racial tension um, mm-hmm. in a way that was, you know, less apparent in California. Not that it's not here, but mm-hmm. um, that it was, you know, we actually had a conversation via email before we all arrived because there were, you know, three black uh, researchers on our team. Um, We had a conversation about how we were gonna navigate um, our feelings about safety and how we were gonna check in about, you know, our mental health and our just feeling safe doing this work in a place that felt very unsafe. Um, So that was interesting to me. And I also think, you know, there was one there was one faculty member who, uh, you know, had all the best intentions in the world and, you know, was, was very comfortable talking about race in their class. Yeah. But um, it was a white woman and she she kind of talked about how she really didn't have much pushback in her class uh, and that, you know, um, the, the discussions around Mizzou and the history of Mizzou were, you know, going fairly smoothly. Um, and it was really interesting to see how 
the rest of the faculty, um, mostly people of color, uh, mostly black women, I should say, uh, were like, well, if you're not experiencing any pushback, it might mean you're not pushing hard enough. Yeah. And that was really compelling to me because in my mind, I sort of heard it as like, oh, okay, like, cool. I'm glad it's it's encouraging to hear that your class yeah. is, you know, pushing back. But then for them to sort of respond in that way was both telling about the fact that perhaps she wasn't making, she wasn't being as clear about what was happening and, and the, the lack of discomfort indicates that there wasn't, um, there wasn't enough push, but then also yeah. her identity as a white woman, right? And so these black women in living in Missouri um, were just experiencing a completely different reality as faculty members, mm. and students who, uh, for the most part, were constantly challenging their authority, challenging their knowledge, challenging mm -hmm. any of their political beliefs, right? And so um, it was definitely eye-opening to me to see that geographical you know difference that you know just the the difference in the climate in missouri versus yeah. you know coming from california where some of those conversations wouldn't have been a push at all yeah totally that's so interesting and i i mean i definitely was obviously i'm in cincinnati now and um after being at usc for a while like cincinnati in a lot of ways you know thankful to be here but a rude rude awakening and in some ways i was i wasn't naive to it but it's very different you know when my uh, jog when I'm jogging and like half a mile away there's uh, you know someone with a, a Trump flag flying or you know a Blue Lives Matter flag flying and I'm like yo I didn't even know they made Blue Lives Matter flags for y'all to buy and it's fascinating yeah. like you have a Blue Lives Matter flag up and you don't even have an American flag up you know right. and you're leaving it out during the rain too so I'm like you don't even care you probably don't even know how to fold a flag so how patriotic are you um, right <laughs> you know like, it, it's just fascinating I think about all these things you know like but um, yeah, it, it's so interesting how region plays a role. And I'm, I've been playing with this idea in my head. Like, I, I'd love to write a paper about how certain people have to navigate campus differently, right? Like, okay. not, like figuratively and literally, you have to navigate campus differently. There are places mm -hmm. where you're welcome and places where you're not welcome. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm thinking like almost like, a, you know, we have a Lovecraft, Lovecraft, Lovecraft country. Is that the, the show? Yeah. Um, I know I, I haven't seen a lot of it, but I know that it, some of it has to do with like the Green Book, right? And mm -hmm. places where Black people are could, so um, we're places where Black people are welcome, and um, for you know, unfortunately, places where they won't get lynched, right? Right. Um, so I, I'm just thinking about like how how do students, I mean, staff, faculty, whatever, where are the safe places for them on campus, right? And what places do they? have to avoid you know um right, right. and off campus too but i'm i'm rambling but um no i mean what you're bringing up is also relevant to like as i'm as i'm recounting my experience at mizzou yeah. you know we would do a focus group and during the focus group these you know these are people who are who signed up to participate mm -hmm. Right. So there's there's already going to be a little bit of a skew in terms of who decides to participate in this study. They know yeah. who we are. I'm sure they can Google us and see what our you know background is, what our research is around. So there's already a skew there. We have people who are mostly wanting to, you know, engage in this conversation. Yeah. But outside the moment that those focus groups ended and when we would walk around that campus, it was a completely different experience. Mm. You know, when there was a moment where I you know, had had some room arrangement issues and 
the person, the administrative aide who was supposed to help me was incredibly rude. She yeah. didn't care what my title was. She did not care who I was. It was very short and it was very cold. Yeah. And I could tell that she had no interest in assisting me. And then when she was told who I was and there was, you know, some clarification about how I should be treated, um, there was some resentment there, right? And so, you know, that in itself was very telling about the campus climate at that totally. institution. Totally, totally, wow. I can't imagine for a student what that's like if I'm yeah. coming outside researcher with a PhD who, you know, or I, I guess I guess at the time I didn't have a PhD. But yeah, you were basically, <laughs> basically had it. <laughs> well, and I'm also, this is a point I want to make as well, right? Like, um, in this case, we're talking about very much race, right? Campus racial climate, racial uprising. But climate works differently for different identities, right? And obviously, all these identities are intersectional. Um, but, you know, we can look at the climate for, like, trans people. We can look at the climate for, um, yeah, queer folks, queer folks of color, right? Um, yeah. Women of color in particular, thinking about gender, right? All, all these things play a role in climate and how the campus is felt, right? Um, yeah, I don't know, just wanted to make that point. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I work at a women's college now, and so mm -hmm. I've only been there for for a couple weeks, but yeah. um, I can already feel a very different climate. Uh, yeah. Not to say that it's perfect for uh, trans non-binary students. It's not to say that there is much work that the institution has to do, but I think historically, women's colleges have been a lot more, um, you know, inclusive and intentional around gender, right? Because yeah. of the of how they were um, constructed. And so as you talk about trans students, I was naturally thinking like, yeah, I do think that Scripps College is probably a lot more uh, supportive and welcoming for trans students than, you know, your average institution. And so based yeah. on identity. And, and just thinking about, again, if you're not thinking about climate, that's a privilege, right? If you're not thinking about racial climate, that's a privilege. If you're not thinking about the climate gender-wise, that's also a privilege, right? So I guess by virtue of it being like, you know, college for women, right, that you're thinking more about gender. Oh, and I didn't ask you this earlier. What, what's your position at Scripps College? Um, so I'm the assistant dean and director of SCORE, which is the Scripps community, Communities of Resources and Empowerment. Um, and so it's essentially like a student equity center um, where, you know, all of the, you know, um, students from racially minoritized communities, um, queer students, uh, mm -hmm. students, disabled students, uh, or students with disabilities um, mm -hmm. will kind of come, they have their student organization meetings there. Um, I kind of serve as like an advisor to those groups. And yeah. we do a lot of education, social justice education for like faculty, staff, as well as students um, and cool. training, things like that. So I, I just want to reiterate to everyone, you know, like, we're talking to an expert here, right? And um, Dr. Okay. Eaton was kind enough to do this uh, talk with me, even though I cannot put up any money for it. She, <laughs> she actually has appearance fees. So thank you for joining us for the, for the free, Bobby. Um <laughs> I know your time is limited, you know, otherwise you're gonna start charging me um, that I don't have. Um, <laughs> just a few more questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> One question about activism, right? You were slash are an activist yourself, right? Um, that's part of who you are. That's part of your identity. That's also part of your research. What's one by you are literally a, a 
uh, you're an expert on student activism. Um, All right, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like you are. You wrote a dissertation about it. You're an expert on it, right? <clears throat> it is. So, I don't. I mean, based on your experience, based on your research, what's one thing um, that either administrators or you know um, the media kind of get wrong about campus activism that you say think about differently? Um, <clears throat> you know, I think this is probably something that like mo you and most of your students would already know. But what I always like to emphasize, you know, in the courses that I teach and in the conversations that I have about um, how campuses can become more inclusive is that um, institutions would not be anywhere near what they are if it wasn't for student activism. Student yeah. activism births everything. Yeah. Um, and so I think what the media often gets wrong is that student activists are whining and complaining and are, you know, these snowflakes who just get offended by any and everything. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so it's it's easy to say, you know, in hindsight, oh, well, yeah, of course we have, you know, a black student union. Of course we have, you know, uh, student services for, you know, mental health or, you know, of course we have these things. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to say that now, but there was a time when the people who were advocating for an LGBTQ center were seen as, you know, these whining, complaining snowflakes, right? And now yeah. it's, you know, now we can say, well, of course that's a necessary space. Yeah. So um, I just always like to remind folks that like from the very beginning of um, higher education in the United States, student activism has always been deeply intertwined. And so no matter what um, position you may be sitting in, um, it's just important to recognize that we need them. Like we need that resistance, whether it's comfortable for you or not, where from where you sit, whether it's an administrator or a faculty position, um, that you need those people to constantly yeah. be pushing. Because we all know from the positions that we've been sitting in, I can say now as an assistant dean, I already know that there will be moments where I cannot act on behalf of myself. I will have to act on behalf of the institution. I will yeah. not be able to say certain things or make certain decisions because the institution will not allow me. Yeah. But I will rely on those student activists to say the things that I can't say and advocate for the things that I cannot do within my role. So yeah. um, just I think that's also always an important thing to say. That's a beautiful point. Um... And yeah, that's something I mean, I just read a book about like campus activism, black student activism in particular, and thinking about how, I mean, number one, that's not always at the front of my mind, right? Like things easy, as you mentioned, for activists to be miscast, right? And in the paper you all wrote, you talk about rage and anger, you know, and how a lot of this rage or anger is is, is rightful, is righteous in a way, you know, um, and, and it's wrong and lazy to miscast these students as like snowflakes, when in reality, like literally what you said, like, the amenities, the if the extent to which a, a campus is inclusive is a result of, you know, these students pushing, you know, um, and I think it's very useful. You've mentioned that tension that you have, that I have, that, you know, a lot of my students will have once they're in their roles or in their roles right now, where they have to, they have to mediate activism with their roles, right? Because mm -hmm. um, not everyone can just leave a job. Right, right. Yeah. So, all right, a couple more questions. Um, all right, so we're, we're living in unprecedented times for a lot of reasons. 
Um, what, what are your thoughts on like the role of higher education in relation to the racial uprisings we've been seeing? The role of higher education as in what higher ed should be doing? Just in general, like, I mean, does it, are, is it related higher ed to what's happening in the streets? You know, what's, what's going on with these protests, what's going on with all the, you know, extrajudicial murders of, of black folks? Does higher ed have a role? Do, you know, uh, does X, you know, master student in my class, you know, how does that impact them? Uh, how should it impact them? Should they be thinking yeah, about it? Higher education always has a role in the sense that, you know, I see I see uh college campuses as, you know, the the practice room for, you know, what happens outside. And so, mm -hmm. you know, of course, higher education cannot isolate and, and cannot be a bubble from yeah, yeah you know, the outside world, it all is a part of it. And so, um, but, you know, it is somewhat protected, you know, students are somewhat protected um, within. And so I just think it's important for, for colleges and universities to really try to serve as an example, right? And mm -hmm. so, so what, what we see happening oftentimes, you know, the services, the, the what we call safe spaces or, you know, um, support systems that higher education institutions put in place, oftentimes that is like a model for what, you know, the rest of the world can be doing. Yeah. Um, and so I think that higher education has a really important role, given that we have, you know, people who are studying society, who are studying these issues in depth. We have experts um, in every area, whether it be health or you know, race or racial uprisings, activism, you know, whatever it might be. And so yeah. it is super important for higher educations to be taking lead and to be making um, bold decisions about um, and, and making bold statements yeah. about what should be done. Uh, you know, our current, you know, administration is definitely trying to take away some of those rights and silence um, a lot of academics and people who are in positions uh, with, with expertise. And yeah. so it's even more important for higher education to be making bold statements about um, against a lot of the racism and a lot of the um, discrimination that's happening. Um, uh, and also just creating the structure uh, in, in the, within the institution um, to ultimately be an example for you know, the rest of the world. Like I, I just, I see higher education as that place. Awesome. Um, and I, I completely agree. Like there's, it's almost like, you know, a higher ed, these universities can be like many micro communities, right? Um, and if if there is any way we can make a progressive step for higher ed, you know, like you said, be able to to model it. Um, the last question, uh, then, I, then I'll let you go. Um, <laughs> so again, just think about the times, right? We're also living during a, a global pandemic, which is wild. Um, <laughs> What does equity and diversity have to do with kind of like COVID and higher ed? COVID and higher ed? Yeah, yeah. Just, I, I don't know. Like, what, I want you to just meditate on it, right? Like COVID and higher ed. What, what are your thoughts? Like, you know, hearing from the expert. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this expert. Yo, this is, that, that's it. When you're an expert, you usually get to meditate oh, on it. So what, what's something you want us to think about? And from COVID in relation to higher education? 
so, you know, we know that Black, Latinx, Indigenous um, communities are experiencing COVID uh, at disproportionate rates. We yeah. know that that happens within the healthcare system overall and within, mm -hmm. you know, um, the economics. We know we know this. Um, and, you know, we just said that higher ed should be playing a role in terms of serving as a model. So I think that uh, it's just really important for us to be um, thinking about how higher education can be completely transformed at this time. Yeah. Like what I, find, what I find to be like the most powerful is so many things were impossible before yeah. the pandemic, right? Like it was impossible to do things virtually. You had to show up to an office. It was right. impossible to, you know, create services and, and make them quick and mm -hmm. accessible. Um, and all of a sudden, COVID, you know, this pandemic, which sees no class, sees no race, yeah. um, sees no gender, all of a sudden, lots of things become possible. Totally. Uh, and so I think that we know that that's because, you know, people from, you know, white folks, you know, people who are rich, you know, are, are also affected by this. And so there is a, a need to respond to those, to their needs, to their requests. Yeah. And so I think that this is an opportunity for higher education to be completely transformed. We should be we should be holding our institutions accountable to making drastic changes right now. Yeah. Um, thinking about ways that we can serve, you know, um, our you know Black, Latinx, Indigenous students differently. Um, yeah. To think about how we can re strategize how the budget is used to think mm -hmm. about new spaces that can, can be created new ways to evaluate um you know student success like mm -hmm. all of these things all of these ways that we thought everything had to be fixed even mm -hmm. financial aid all of that is is up for grabs in my mm -hmm. opinion that we're in this pandemic and so um i think it's really important for us to hold our institutions accountable to to transform in ways that yeah. They apparently said that they it was impossible before because now yeah. now anything is possible. Totally, yeah. I mean, I, no, I love that you said that, and I'm thinking right now about how all these universities are going to be test optional, right? Like, you yeah. not to do. We're waving the GRE this year. We are waving the ACT this year. We're wa waving the you know SAT, ACT, what have you. This, you know, like what? <laughs> right. That now you can wave it, you know, and, and we we know. Um, I don't think we'll talk about it in this class, unfortunately. But we know that the SAT, ACT is more of a barometer of um, socioeconomic status than aptitude, right? Um, right. And now, now they're waiving it, right? So, I mean, yeah, I just I appreciate you saying that this can be a, a break or a door of possibility, depending on, you know, how we respond to it. So, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, thank you uh, for, for joining us, Dr. Wheaton. Um, I'll include your Twitter if that's okay. I'm, I'm sure some folks will want to follow you, but a dynamic uh, leader and scholar in the higher ed realm. So thanks again for um, for for chatting with us. Thank you, Dr. T. Chavakunda. This was really a pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Your students are very lucky to have you. It's very kind of you to say. <laughs> I'll chat with you later. <laughs> All right. We've learned a lot about campus activism, racial climates, and how institutions might better meet the needs of students. At the least, I hope you understand how campus unrest often has a very real cause worth exploring. Students aren't snowflakes. If you dig into it, 
their anger is often righteous. Campus activism, I think, can lead to a break or a possibility of a more equitable future on campus, and maybe even a more equitable society as a whole.